Welcome to episode 35 in the third season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and I'm here with our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. The big news this past week was, of course, the passing of our monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, who died on September 8th at Balmoral Castle in Scotland at the age of 96, and the ascension to the throne of her son, Prince, now King, Charles III. Queen Elizabeth was crowned in 1952 when she was 25 years old, and so ruled for just over 70 years, through much change in the world, social, political, and technological. With regard to Canada, we will always remember that it was 40 years ago this past April she signed, as our Queen and on behalf of Great Britain and the Commonwealth, the proclamation that brought our Constitution to life, including the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Thank you. Rest in peace. John, you wanted to say a few words about the Queen to start the show? Please, go ahead. I would not describe myself as a fervent or passionate monarchist per se, uh, but I will just say on a, on a personal note that I have great admiration for Queen Elizabeth because I saw her as always fulfilling her duty. And to fulfill duties is often hard and unpleasant. And there's a lot of people, I surmise, I guess, that, that some people are jealous of the monarch because the monarch, you know, has got all this money and you've got, you know, probably three very nice meals all the time. You probably don't have to scour through the fridge and, you know, throw out <laughs> leftovers that have gone bad. And, you know, maybe you get your uh, delicious meals, uh, you know, served to you and you don't have to shop or cook or clean. And you've got, you know, you live in uh, in a nice place and you're famous and all that, you know, well and true. I mean, there are uh, things that, that I, I would see those things as, as benefits. You know, I, part of me would be really interested in having a lifestyle where <laughs> you know, I live in a big palace right. and I've got enough money to travel the world. And I, you know, I, I don't have responsibilities for housekeeping or cooking. And if, you know, I've got all these servants doing all these things. Okay, fine. But th there's another side to this where you're born into this and you have no choice. Well, I, I suppose you do. We've had some abdications. Uh, there's one of the predecessors uh, wanted to marry an American divorcee in, this was in the 1930s or thereabouts and gave up the throne. So, so there is a, there is a choice there, but one of the things that Queen Elizabeth did very, very well was to remain impartial. And we take it for granted that, you know, anything that comes along, you can just kind of state your opinion on. But imagine living a life where, uh, apart from the topics of horses and dogs, which apparently the, the only thing that people knew that Queen Elizabeth had an opinion on was horses and dogs. And she would talk about, you know, different breeds of horses and dogs and which ones she liked or disliked and why and you know that sort of thing but never on uh, politics never on social issues cultural issues moral issues so I, I i admire that well you know she did come close a few times when they she did her yearly address christmas address there's uh that was always very carefully parsed i recall in the media, uh, in particular, the, you know, I remember recall the Annis Horribilists and things like that when, you know, they had a bad year and, uh, you know, the politics of the nation would be somehow mixed up in that as well. And, so, and to a certain extent, the Commonwealth, because we paid attention to it here. Yeah. So I, I, I mourn her uh, passing. Uh, it's the only monarch, you know, I was born in 1967. So it's the only monarch that, uh, that I've ever known. And uh, I, I admire how she carried out her duties with dignity. And uh, in particular, that I, I, she did what I think is very difficult to just not uh, state your opinions on what's going on around you. Uh, that's a, a mm. you know kind of a, a right or, that all of us just take for granted. And that the, the queen, apart from perhaps private conversations with, with her husband or the most secret uh, or 
or the most senior advisors, she uh, she carried out her duties very uh, faithfully. Yeah. Well, of course, she, as I mentioned in the opening, you know, she was there for some landmarks as well, including the one that has basically led to the formation of this particular group, the Justice Center. Maybe you just want to give a word about that. So one one of the many landmarks during her reign was the 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta, which was right. signed in 1215 by the bad King John. I can't imagine somebody named John being a bad person, but apparently this this King John was was terrible, and the barons at Knife Point forced him to sign this document, and it established the principle, which was not always honored thereafter, but nevertheless, mm-hmm. it established the the principle that the king was subject to the law and not above it, and. Uh, it says that uh, no free man shall be seized or imprisoned except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the land. Now, this is very profound in so far as most countries in the world today and most countries in human history uh, have been reigned by a king or some other dictator who, if he doesn't like the color of your hair, or if he doesn't like the criticism that you uttered uh, about him or his reign, or if he sees you as a threat, uh, the king can order can lock you up and say, okay, you're going to jail. Now, this idea in Magna Carta, which triumphed in, in Britain and most European countries, the United States, Canada, uh, and countries around the world, particularly the, the Commonwealth countries, it's this idea that no, the, the king does not have this power to just say, well, uh, you know, I dislike you, you're a political opponent, you're a threat, I dislike what you're saying, I find what you're saying to be very hateful and offensive, so I'm going to throw you in jail. It's like, no, 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 that doesn't work that way. In a, in a democracy where, and Canada's democracy is based on the rule of law, the rule of law, one of the aspects of the rule of law is that you know, yeah, you can go to jail for murdering somebody. Why? Because there's a law against murdering people and you can get arrested for shoplifting because there's a law that says that you cannot steal somebody else's property, et cetera, et cetera. So we have laws and then everybody is subject to the law, including the king. And that's very different from what has been the norm in most places in human history and even most countries in the world today. You don't have this fully established because you've got the ruler of the country. If he or she, I suppose, uh, doesn't like you, you can find yourself being tossed in jail even though you've not violated a law. Or variation thereof, you've got countries where there are laws on the books, uh, but if you criticize the prime minister, you suddenly find yourself the next day in jail on some trumped up charges that don't hold water. And I think this is where Canada is at with Tamara Leach, who was one of the leaders in the uh, the Freedom Convoy movement in Ottawa, which was peaceful, which was nonviolent, which was citizens exercising their charter freedoms. She ends up in jail. Um, so, so this is very significant that, um, no free man shall be seized or imprisoned except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the land. So that's also the idea that you deserve to have a, a fair trial, uh, with other people in your community decide if you're innocent or guilty of a crime. And that, that right to trial by jury is also part of Canada's legal heritage. I just want to parse the uh, the phrase rule of law for a, a second here. I just thought about it. And does it mean that we are ruled by law? In other words, instead of being ruled by the divine right of the monarch, we are ruled by the law? Or does it simply mean that, you know, this is a rule, law is a rule that we follow? I've never looked it up. <laughs> it means that we are ruled by written laws, not arbitrary power. And this this uh, th- this whole idea of the rule of law, la- last week we talked about this famous Quebec court case that, that I was taught in first-year law in 1995, and from what I've heard is still being taught in first-year law. And that's the case of Ron Corelli, R-O-N-C-A-R-E-L-L-I. I think Ron Corelli, that's one word, that's the last name. It's not Ron yeah. Corelli. Uh, so Ron Corelli versus du- Duplessis. And this was the Jehovah's Witness restaurant 
owner who right, had yeah. his liquor license revoked and it was because the premier didn't like this guy and the premier phoned or wrote to the person in charge of the liquor control board and said, this guy's a jerk, pulled his liquor license. And according to the act, and technically the premier argued unsuccessfully that this is, well, the act says that the commission has discretion. So the commission exercised its discretion and and uh, legally under the statute uh, yanked this guy's liquor license. And the Supreme Court of Canada, where it ultimately ended up, said, no, that discretion has to be exercised uh, appropriately according to the intentions and purposes of the statute, not the arbitrary whims of the premier. So even right. there, that, that's, that's another, the, the rule of law is it's a multi-dimensional thing, but, but there's an aspect of it. So here we have a written law that gives the liquor commission discretion to grant or revoke a liquor license. But even there, that discretion is governed by legal principles that the liquor control board is supposed to look at the purpose of the statute. And you can't just have the premier of the province picking on a political opponent and telling the commission to, uh, you know, harass this guy and fundamentally abuse the law in that way. So what the premier did was contrary to the rule of law. Of course. And the, the law, the rule is supposed to be supreme. It's, I guess, when we're talking about rulers and rule of law, that's probably important distinction to be made in our society or whatever, our constitutional government. That's why I think it's significant we mentioned this, that she, the queen was around for that celebration was somewhat fantastic because I think she was probably, I think, 89 years old at that time, you know, so she managed to get to 96. And uh, of course she was, uh, as I said, uh, you know, foundational to our charter. She signed that. Interesting things leading up to that, as Brian Peckford uh, articulated at the uh, Justice Center's George Jonas Freedom Award dinners in Vancouver and Calgary, that initially uh, Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the the father of the current Prime Minister, he got very impatient with these pesky premiers that were not going along with what he wanted, and he proceeded to... um, he decided that it would be good enough for the federal government to go it alone and unilaterally get the the charter in place. And then um, premiers took this yep. to court. And the Supreme Court of Canada, to its credit, even though uh, several of those Supreme Court justices at that time were personal friends of the prime minister or personal acquaintances, but they chose the law over their personal friendship. And they said, well, no, Canada is a federal country. So... If you want to have a new constitution, the federal government cannot just do that alone and change the constitution of the country. Uh, but the nature of the country with, with uh, provinces having significant jurisdiction over things like <laughs> healthcare, contrary to what we might think, it's a provincial matter, healthcare and education, property, civil rights, uh, so on and so forth. And, um, no, that too is is uh, part of the rule of law is that you have truly independent judges who, even if they do happen to be friends with the prime minister, which does happen because Canada, like every other country, has kind of an establishment and people travel in the same circles and you can't prevent premiers and prime ministers from uh, developing friendships with, with, with judges. I mean, that's going to happen. But we have had in the past, at least, this, this healthy separation where judges are going to first of all, uphold the law and put that ahead of any friendship they might have with uh, with the politician. Well, speaking of the Charter, I want to get to a story that uh, has received some exposure from commenters in the news, that is, opinion writers in the news that have been talking about the election in Quebec. They have been saying, you know, that since the CAQ is poised to win re-election there, They're suggesting that that government's potential use of the notwithstanding clause will result in, quote, a less relevant charter. And I say, really? I suggest that the COVID response in Canada running roughshod over several different charter rights and with the support of many in the public for this abuse has diminished the charter more than any other event. What say you, John? Well, I, I agree with you. The way that our charter rights and freedoms have been trampled into the ground these past 30 months. This is continuing today, by the way, right? You still, mm-hmm. uh, although I keep on <laughs> bumped into somebody earlier today, a friend of mine 
told me how he came back from uh, a European country and you know got back in without having uh, used or adopted the uh, the ArriveCan app, and this is becoming more and more frequent. And I think some of the border authorities are gradually, at least in some places, I don't know where, are, are moving into a non-enforcement. And um, but the fact that we've got you know, a federal government that is restricting without any medical or scientific basis whatsoever, restricting the free re-entry back into Canada on the part of Canadians is just disgraceful. And it, it shows that there's no respect. Uh, there's there's too little respect for charter rights and freedoms. A bit later, we'll get into some of uh, the prime minister's warnings about this uh, scary, dangerous winter that we're all, you know, I guess we're all going to die in the next six months or so if we don't get our third, fourth or fifth shot. We'll get into that in a minute. I don't think that the re-election, we are nonpartisan, so I'm not, yeah. I'm not rooting for or against any, anybody to win or lose. But I, I will say if Premier Legault and the Coalition Avenir Québec, the CAC, if they are re-elected, I don't, Think in and of itself, I don't see that as helping or harming charter rights per se. Uh, we do have an issue in Quebec with the secularism law, which uh, I personally think just goes way too far. I mean, this is, this is generally good concept of, of secularism, but the, the devil's in the details. And here, you know, you, you can't be a school teacher, you can't be a lawyer in court. That if your religion requires you to wear a kippah or a turban or some other headgear or maybe a, you know a necklace around your with a cross or this or that whatever there cannot be any religious symbols at all I think just goes way too far uh, but they have already included a reference to section thirty three the notwithstanding clause which is that this law operates notwithstanding charter rights and freedoms now a lot of people hate the notwithstanding clause, because they say it allows politicians to run roughshod over our charter rights and freedoms. People who say that, most of them forget that section one of the charter allows judges to run roughshod over our charter rights and freedoms. Are judges going to be better or worse than politicians? Well, that's debatable. I suppose it depends on which judge, which politician, what context, what, you know, what province, what time period, whatever. Judges are human, and they have their prejudices and their biases, and politicians are human and have their prejudices and biases. So I was at the 35th anniversary celebration of the Charter. There was a big conference at McGill University in Montreal, and I remember Joe Clark was one of the people – he was, of course, you know, uh, leader of the opposition at the time that the Charter was was signed, but – Several people spoke and, and they all said the charter would never have become part of Canada's constitution had it not been for the notwithstanding clause. Uh, because the charter at the end of the day was also a political compromise. Prime Minister Trudeau needed enough premiers to come on board with the particular draft that was adopted. And the Western premiers were concerned. Uh, and I think rightfully and appropriately about judicial tyranny, where you've got judges running the country without any democratic accountability. So the Western premiers insisted that there be a notwithstanding clause so that if the courts came out with a really idiotic or really bad or really stupid or really uh, rights violating or freedom violating ruling, that the government could opt out, so to speak, and say, notwithstanding the rights and freedoms we're going to stick with our law anyways, the, the way that it's written. So it kind of, and there was supposed to have been a dialogue. Uh, that was the idea is that there's a dialogue between the Supreme Court of Canada and the federal parliament and provincial legislatures. We haven't seen too much of that dialogue in the first decades of the charter having become part of our constitution. The notwithstanding clause was used only by the Quebec government to opt out of court rulings that struck down some of the language laws, uh, right. which the obviously when you've got restrictions on English in, in Quebec or mandatory use of, uh, of French uh, in, in certain places, et cetera. I mean, these are obvious violations of the, the freedom of expression. 
But of course, the, the big battle is fought under Section 1. Are they demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society? Yes and no. So over the years, there have been court rulings that have struck down various parts of various Quebec language laws where the court has said that, uh, you know, the restrictions on English are not justified. They're, they've gone too far or they're too broad or they're, you know, whatever. And so Quebec has responded by opting out. So the notwithstanding clause got a bad name. But more recently, it was used by uh, Premier Doug Ford in Ontario to strike down a ruling that, that I thought was just ridiculous. Uh, the court ruled in 2018 that the redistribution of municipal council seats in Toronto, where they went from, I think, 55 or 57 or somewhere around there, they went down to 25 <laughs> municipal seats, uh, which obviously harmed the campaigns of, of all these candidates. And I, I can understand how upset they felt. But the court said that reducing the number of municipal seats on city council from 50 or 50 something down to 25 violated freedom of expression and violated the right to vote. And it was so ridiculous. I mean, it could have been maybe bad or unfair, but it, it doesn't violate anybody's freedom to express themselves, nor does it violate the right of voters to vote in an election. It was just, you know, I guess bad timing for not too long before an election and, and the candidates in the 57 or 55, whatever districts had all been busy. And all of a sudden, all these candidates got told, Oh, sorry. Uh, you've now got to run. Yeah. You got to run in a much bigger area. And you might have to run against like a friend that was a philosophical ally in, in the district next door. And now your opponents against each other, you know, going after this. So the, the Ford government opted out and said, No, we're sticking with this legislation. And um, we also had a. Did it get taken to the Supreme Court? Did the Supreme Court rule on that, or did they just basically waive the notwithstanding clause and and end it before it actually entered into the court? Well, they used the notwithstanding clause, and I, I think uh, I would have to research whether they tried to appeal it to the Ontario Court of Appeal, and if the Ontario Court of Appeal said, "Well, we declined to hear it because it's moot." Right, because the yeah. notwithstanding clause has been used. I, I don't know the details of, of what happened. Oh, okay. Well, but, yeah. The, sorry, I was just going to point out the distinction that I see in these people that are, you know, waving the red flag now that the government of Quebec might use the notwithstanding clause and saying this is going to diminish the charter and the diminishment of the charter during the pandemic response. It seems to me almost a difference between group rights and individual rights in a way there's a they didn't raise the red flag for the individual rights that were being violated at least it, it seemed to me i mean that's an impression that i make and i guess that's very much an opinion but you know now that they're talking about quebec violating sort of minority rights then of course this is something that's tried and true for them you know they're worried about the notwithstanding clause as you pointed out but they're not worried about section one which allows judges to override the charter and that, to me, uh, you know, there's a distinction there that, that bothers me. That's all I, I was trying to point out. Well, both when it comes to the, the COVID measures and the secularism law and, and the language law, it is often it's the collective rights or group rights, uh, also referred to sometimes as the common good or the public interest, is always invoked. And I've, I've said this many times, though those have been listening to this podcast for a while, right? Governments never take away your rights and freedoms without offering up something that at least sounds good. Like we're, we're taking away your rights and freedoms to protect you from the terrorists or to protect you from the communists or to protect you from capitalist exploitation, to protect you from the Jews, to protect you from COVID, to protect you from uh, the, the bad neighbor next door who's about to invade us. It, it's always about safety and protection and uh, so there's always a, a pretext. Now, the same with, you know, with laws that violate charter rights and freedoms. So all of the lockdown measures, which very obviously violate our charter freedoms to, to move and travel and to enter and leave Canada freely to travel within Canada, our rights to associate with whom you please, you know, like uh, having Christmas dinner with your mother, maybe. You know, freedoms of association to have your schools and universities and churches open, freedom of peaceful assembly, ruthlessly crushed by police trampling on elderly ladies in Ottawa 
where uh, peaceful protest was was uh, you know, used as as a pretext for uh, declaring a national emergency. So with all, all the COVID measures, it's oh, it's about your safety. We're doing this for your own good, and we're doing this to keep you safe from a scary virus that is as bad as the Spanish flu of 1918. They don't say it directly that way, but that's the fear-mongering that, that kick-started the whole thing was that COVID was going to be as bad as the Spanish flu of 1918. Now, it's the same thing in Quebec. So the secularism law, well, we got to keep you safe from... <laughs> now, here, I'm, I'm not... <laughs> You're going to editorialize. I can see it. Okay. Go ahead. We got to keep you safe from the horror of being exposed to a person with a religious uh, symbol. So we have to protect you from seeing somebody wearing a kippah because then you might know that that person is Jewish. And that would be a horrific, that would be like a psychological rape to have to encounter somebody that, you know, is wearing a turban or a kippah or wearing a, a cross necklace, et cetera. I mean, it, it is so ridiculous. It presupposes it's the same logic I see as as like anti free speech, right? Like we're all we're all so fragile, so we have to protect you from uh, from anything that you might find offensive because you're you're a snowflake. And so, in my view, the secularism law it just presupposes that that people are such snowflakes; they are so fragile that if the the police officer giving you a speeding ticket or the school teacher in front of the classroom is you know, wearing something that suggests that that person might be a Muslim or a Jew or a Sikh or whatever. I mean, some religions have, you know, things that that would identify the adherents and and, uh, other religions don't. But it's just so ridiculous, I think, that this notion that we have to protect people from encountering a you know, a public service, a public servant at your driver's license renewal place, or a police officer giving you a speeding ticket, or a school teacher in front of the class, uh, that, or a, a medical doctor that is, you know, uh, treating you, that, that we are so fragile that we can't handle that medical doctor or police officer knowing that they belong to a certain religious faith, that we are, we are that fragile. That's, that's right. my take on the secularism law. It's just uh, the the concept of government being neutral, I agree with, and that's consistent with the rule of law, in fact, right? So so that your police officer should be totally non-biased and should not be looking at your religion or skin color or anything else. Uh, Okay, fine. I just don't think that if a police officer is wearing a a kippah or a turban or if it's a female police officer wearing a a head covering of of some kind, I I don't know why that would create unwarranted fear that you're being treated unfairly. I, I I don't get that. Okay, fair enough. Maybe we could just broaden this out quickly before we move on to the next topic. I just want to ask you: Are we in a period of diminishment of the charter? I obviously think so because of the uh, the pandemic and the way they were so successful in taking away our rights. Is this a trend you see continuing? And if so, what can we do as a society to reverse that trend? I know what we can do at the Justice Center, but, uh, you know, what can everybody else do? Can they start loudly proclaiming their rights or is it just a matter of civil disobedience? You know, I mean, what can we do to reverse this trend? Civil disobedience is uh, definitely a part of it. When people refuse to cooperate with unjust laws, those unjust laws lose all their teeth, right? If every Canadian says that wearing a cloth face mask to keep out COVID is like erecting a chain link fence to keep out mosquitoes and it's useless, and if every Canadian stops wearing a mask, there isn't a lot that the authorities can really do about that. They can't put, uh, they can't issue 38 million fines to 38 million Canadians that are not wearing masks. So uh, civil disobedience uh, vis-a-vis unjust laws that um, are not justified violations of our rights and freedoms is part of the picture. Uh, greater participation in the political process is another part. I talk to people every day who they're, they're outraged about lockdowns. And I say, have you talked to your, your MPP, your MLA? Have you talked to your provincial representative? Have you talked to your member of parliament? And I say, no. 
Well, okay, there you go. You have to tell your, uh, your provincial and federal elected rep and your municipal ones that, uh, you don't appreciate charter rights and freedoms being violated and they need to hear from you. So that's part of it. Another part of it is to educate ourselves, whether we are adults or children to educate ourselves. The Justice Center, um, we've hired a, um, education programs coordinator, a young man by the name of Luke uh, Nielsen, and he has a bachelor's and a master's degree from the University of Calgary, I believe, in philosophy. And he's a very good writer, and he's very committed to the cause. And one of the things he'll be working on, and this is going to take quite a few months, is a uh, charter curriculum that we're going to have on our website, and we're going to have videos, and I suppose, you know, print and I'll keep people informed as to whether, I don't know if we'll have two versions, one that's oriented towards adults or one orient and another one towards children, or maybe we'll start with one of those two. And so we're going to bring that forward to educate Canadians about charter rights and freedoms, because obviously there hasn't been much of that done in the past 40 years. When you see how people just shrug their shoulders, when the authorities say that you cannot spend Christmas with your, uh, with your parents or you cannot spend Christmas with your adult children. And when they say you can't get onto an airplane unless you've been injected twice, uh, with a substance for which there is no long-term safety data. Well, then people obviously don't know their charter rights and freedoms that, that well. So it's, uh, we need to work as hard as possible, as soon as possible, or as urgently as possible, and for as long as necessary to really get the charter rights and freedoms ingrained back into the, the hearts and minds of, of Canadians, because certainly the response to the last 30 months has been atrocious. Well, I'm really glad to hear about that education program that you're whipping up. I hope you include the uh, input from Brian Peckford, who gives all the behind-the-scenes stuff. He gave a great speech at the uh, Justice Centre George Jonas Freedom Award dinner, uh, where he talked about uh, the development of the Charter and his behind-the-scenes view of it. So, yeah, I look forward to that. Speaking of Charter violations, I want to talk about our Prime Minister, because he, of course has now gone on record saying that everyone needs a booster in order to avert onerous restrictions this winter because we're not done or COVID is not done with us. We might be done with COVID, but COVID is not done with us. So yeah, he's threatened greater restrictions if uh, people don't get the booster. He's trying to get us up to like 80 or 90% compliant on that. I don't know what the current stats are, but um, I Bet yeah, they're not that. Otherwise, he wouldn't be making this appeal. Well, Kevin, the clip is only two minutes. Maybe you want to play it. Okay. Hang on a sec. Now, this is audio taken from a video in a True North tweet of September 5th of Prime Minister Trudeau speaking to reporters on September 2nd. I think it's September 2nd. COVID's not done with us yet. We might want to be done with it, but it's still around. And yes, we have a lot more tools, a lot more understanding, a lot more knowledge on how to keep ourselves and our loved ones safe that have allowed us to get back to regular life in a lot of ways for a whole bunch of people. But we also know that as winter comes and as people get pushed back indoors, there is a real risk of another serious wave of COVID. One of the best things we can do to prevent that wave, prevent the pressure on our healthcare systems, prevent provinces from having to take decisions around restrictions and mandates, is to ensure that everyone is up to date in their vaccinations. The recommendation is, you know, you should uh, be up to date in your vaccinations if you have, a, have had a dose within six months. Everyone who has been a while since their vaccination, this vaccination, should look at the fact that we have new vaccines coming out this month that are tailored against Omicron that will provide better protection and everyone should get out and get vaccinated. If we are able to hit that 80, 85, 90% of Canadians up to date in their vaccinations, we'll have a much better winter with much less need for the kinds of restrictions and rules that were so problematic for everyone over the past years. But every step of the way, 
government's responsibilities is to keep people safe, to prevent our healthcare systems from getting overwhelmed. And that's where individuals choosing to make sure they're up to date in their vaccinations with these new vaccines is going to help us all. So Prime Minister Trudeau says COVID is still around. Well, I suppose that's true, but uh, it's not the Spanish flu of 1918. Uh, contrary to the false claim made by Professor Neil Ferguson of Imperial College in March of 2020, which put the whole world into a state of fear. And I think it's dishonest on the part of the prime minister to pretend that uh, COVID is this, you know, bubonic plague or uh, something that is an unusually deadly killer when in the past 30 months it's proven not to be. And anybody who spends uh, some time looking at the um, death data, provincial and federal, will see that, you know, we, we didn't have this huge wave of unexpected or, or excess deaths in 2020. Uh, the, the death toll in Canada was, the death rate in Canada was very much in line with what it had been in 2019, 2018, 2017. So the fear mongering, you know, when you have the prime minister saying COVID is still around, uh, that's, that's fear mongering. He talks about safety. Okay. Well, whenever politicians, uh, or judges take away your rights and freedoms, it's always about your safety. We got to protect you from something bad. He says there's a real risk of another serious wave of COVID. I mean, Omicron was pretty mild. COVID itself was more dangerous than the annual flu for elderly people, but less dangerous than the annual flu for children. Uh, it used to be that, that the annual flu would, would kill kids under the age of five, whereas COVID has not done so. Now, here he turns into uh, a real terrorist uh, threatening lockdowns uh, unless we get the third shot. So this is, you know, uh, put a gun to your head. Uh, uh, unless you give me your wallet, I'm going to pull the trigger. Uh, you know, unless you do such and such, I'm going to beat you into a bloody pulp. Unless you do this, I'm going to do that. It's it's a very overt threat to uh, further take away our rights and freedoms, uh, right? They're already being taken away by virtue of this Arrive Can app and the unscientific uh, medically baseless requirement that you go into quarantine for two for two weeks. Uh, you know, it, this is purely political punishment for the unpopular minority of Canadians who have not had their two injections. Right, so you're going to get punished with house arrest. Uh, you've got to be home for uh, uh, under effectively house arrest. This is a criminal punishment. If you get convicted of a crime, you can be ordered to stay home for two weeks. So this is a serious punishment when the federal government says, upon getting back to Canada, if you have not been injected twice, you have to be home for two weeks. So he's, he's threatening if you don't get your third shot. And he's, he's also saying, you know, if you haven't had a shot in six months. So this is uh, suggesting that this ties in with what um, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization uh, said in a True North article written by Cosman Zordza, not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, uh, but they said you should get you should get a get injected once every three months, <laughs> which is yeah, in interesting. Yeah. National Advisory Committee on Immunization. If you're if you're immunized, it means you're not getting it. Like I've I had my polio shot, or maybe it was two shots. I don't know. It was not three, four, five, or six, and certainly not once every every three months. Uh, I don't know if some of these. You know, childhood vaccines. You, I don't know if you get a second one or not, but in any event, I don't have to get injected once every three months to protect me from polio. I got that shot, uh, or perhaps two shots, uh, as a baby, as a child, and that's it. I'm actually immune to polio. And here, National Advisory Committee on Immunization, it's not providing you immunity if you need to get reinjected once every three months. I just want to give my little anecdote. I just today, uh, while I was sort of doing a little research, I uh, had the TV on without sound, and there was a football game, college football game down in the United States, and there was a commercial popped up. And I didn't hear what they were saying, but I could see what they were flashing on the screen. And then what they were doing was pushing the booster using all the same arguments oh, you're gonna, not going to get COVID, or you're not going to get it as bad. And then it, it was like at the end, it said Pfizer slash Moderna. Now formulated for variants. And I thought, what the heck? You know, because aren't the variants things that we can't really predict? It mutates. Unless they're talking about all the variants in the past, 
There's just, you know, this is one golden shot that you need uh, a booster for. I'm not quite sure what they were trying to sell. But anyways, I, I had never seen that phrase now formulated for variants before as a selling point. So, Well, we, we saw the same thing south of the border. I have an article here. Joe Biden warns of winter of death for the unvaccinated ah, yes. with Plaster. Omicron. Omicron here now and spreading. Quote, uh, so this is December 17th, 2021, so about uh, 10 months ago. U.S. President Joe Biden issued a grim warning as he said that unvaccinated Americans will soon overwhelm U.S. hospitals and they will experience a winter of severe illness and death. I want to send a direct message to the American people due to the steps we've taken. Omicron has not yet spread as fast as it would have otherwise done. But it's here now, it's spreading, it's going to increase. We're looking at a winter of severe illness and death for the unvaccinated, for themselves, their families, and the hospitals they will soon overwhelm. The U.S. president urged Americans to get their booster shot, saying it was past time to get one and prevent schools and businesses from shutting down. So in other words, if you don't, if you don't get injected with this substance, we're going to close schools and businesses. And this is just out and out terrorism and blackmail. Say, so we're going to punish you, take away your rights and freedoms, if you don't get injected, which is just, uh, it's an obscene and outrageous violation of the Nuremberg Code, of which the central principle is informed voluntary consent to any medical treatment and getting injected with something that's ostensibly for your health is obviously is a, is a medical treatment. Yeah, and it's getting harder to demonstrably justify as far as I can tell, because there's more data out there now on the uh, either the efficacy or the non-efficacy of the lockdowns, you know, and masks as well, all these NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions. We've got more data on them. They don't appear to have worked very well. How can you threaten to impose them again, knowing that they're not going to work? To me, it's a political threat. It's not a scientifically based intervention. So that's that's my main objection to that. Also, I just want to point out, this was what I found very interesting about Trudeau's threat. And that is the fact that during the first and second wave, as we were taking the Manitoba government to court, the whole implication was that this was being applied by the provinces. The provinces were the ones that were doing it, and the federal government was at arm's length. What Trudeau seems to be implying here is that they are actually the ones that were doing it. And that's kind of what I suspected after reading the Manitoba documents, that the federal government was the one that was bullying the provinces into doing this. This adds a little, what I would say, credence to my suspicion. The other blackmail aspect is this healthcare system will be overwhelmed. Uh, this is yet another lie, uh, pretending that somehow our medical system was not overwhelmed uh, prior to March of 2020, when the first lockdowns were imposed. And for example, in Alberta, the chief medical officer canceled 20,000 surgeries. Jerry Dunham was one of the victims of her decision. His heart was functioning at 25% capacity, and he needed the surgery to fix that. And he was scheduled to have surgery. Uh, Dina Hinshaw canceled his surgery and then he died very predictably. He was a ticking time bomb. Like they said, you could die at, at any moment. Your heart is functioning at 25% capacity. You need this um, pacemaker or whatever it was. So, you know, a father of two young daughters uh, died, was effectively killed by a lock lockdown measures uh, two weeks before Father's Day in 2020. So there's this false fear mongering that, that, that somehow we have to believe that our medical system was not overwhelmed prior to March of, uh, of 2020. And this gets into this whole other dimension of the, um, how governments have this aggressive hostility against ivermectin that normally you don't see that towards medications that could be effective for some people some of the time. They've changed the entire standard. Uh, anybody who's been to a doctor more than once will know that doctors will often say, okay, you've got such and such condition. Okay, try this, try that. Are there any medications that are 100% effective? I mean, no. Even, you know, taking an aspirin for a headache, maybe that's, you know, 
effective 90% of the time or 95% of the time, but it's not always going to be effective. And so here we have this uh, aggressive hostility on the part of the medical establishment and on the part of chief medical officers and politicians and colleges of physicians and surgeons and, oh, and the, you know, pharmaceutical companies as well. Everybody's hostile to ivermectin and we're told that should not be prescribed to patients uh, because it's not 100% effective against COVID. Well, since when is that the standard? I mean, if, if ivermectin was 10% effective against COVID when taken with vitamin C and vitamin D, why would you have this kind of hostility against a treatment that was working 10% of the time? And so th- there are so many lies here. Uh, just the, the whole idea that our Canadian healthcare system was just working beautifully until March of 2020. And then COVID came along and, oh, well, now we need these lockdowns to save the, to not overwhelm the healthcare system. I mean, we've had serious problems in Canada for a long time. That's why Dr. Jacques Chauly in, um, in the 1990s started a, a court action, uh, to strike down Quebec's ban on private health insurance. Uh, this doctor was from France, which, like most countries in the world, very sensibly has publicly funded healthcare that is also privately delivered. And so they have public and private and they have both systems and there's no conflict. There's no problems. They have much better healthcare in France than they do in Canada. And so Dr. Jacques Chauly launched his challenge to Quebec's ban on private health insurance and was successful in the Supreme Court of Canada, which issued the Shauli ruling in 2005. And even, even then, uh, there's an abundance of evidence uh, put before the courts about how waiting lists were killing people and waiting lists still are killing people. And now these chief medical officers have made things worse by canceling uh, over 200,000 uh, surgeries all across Canada were canceled in early 2020. Um, many of those were rescheduled, but there were also a lot of people that died after their surgery was canceled and they needed their life-saving uh, heart transplant or they needed their uh, pacemaker or other uh, implant into their heart. Along that lines, I flagged a headline that came out of the Vancouver province on September 9th. Uh, quote, about half of Canadians either can't find a family doctor or wait longer than a week for an appointment, poll. So, yeah, we have this evidence, and I think it's coming out in other jurisdictions as well. In particular, Britain, they're having all kinds of problems with their national health care system uh, due to underfunding or mismanagement. I would, I would say a bit of both. And it has nothing to do with COVID. So I don't think they're going to be able to successfully resurrect that excuse It'll be interesting to see if they try. I mean, it's always a good go-to, right? You know, oh, we got to save the system. Otherwise, everybody's going to suffer. But people are suffering now, obviously. The stories that we're getting in the media on a regular basis tell us that our healthcare system is not in good shape at a time when we should be, I guess, repairing it in case there is another wave. You know, uh, it seems like the default is, oh, we've only got vaccinations and that's it. So, yeah. And the colleges of physicians and surgeons have not helped by driving pe- doctors to retire prematurely. Mm. And this has happened a lot in the last two and a half years where there are doctors who do not agree with the government's narrative about COVID being this, you know, equivalent to Spanish flu of 1918, unusually deadly killer that everybody should be afraid of. Uh, that there are no treatments for COVID at all. Um, I know doctors who are secretly, quietly under the radar prescribing ivermectin used in combination with vitamin C and D. But ivermectin by itself is not going to be helpful. And uh, also no registered nurses that are uh, quietly, secretly under the radar. They are looking after patients by providing ivermectin used in combination with vitamin C and D, and they say that that, that's successful. Now, you could argue that that's just a placebo effect and and that that it's not successful. And I say, fine, bring on the debate. What's wrong here is it's it's not about who's right or wrong about the COVID treatments. What's wrong is that you've got colleges of physicians and surgeons. They have never done that uh, until this uh, COVID and lockdowns business started. They did not get into medical debates about what treatments and what drugs and what medicines are working or not working. They did not interfere with the right of every doctor to actually practice medicine by making an individualized judgment, right? 
as mm-hmm. as one doctor explained it, you know, is uh, anti cholesterol medication can be a good thing for some people, uh, for other people not, and it depends on the individual patient. The college doesn't step in there and say, "Oh, anti cholesterol medication is wonderful. Everybody, everybody should get it, and the doctors must prescribe it for uh, you know anybody having such and such levels." You know, or nor do they do the opposite and say, "Oh, well, anti-cholesterol medications have a lot of negative side effects, so we're we're prohibiting them." No, the college allowed previously allowed doctors to practice medicine, so doctors could, on an individualized basis, uh, they could say what each patient needed. There was a doctor in Calgary who told a his patient, who hap- happens to be a registered nurse, the patient happens to be a nurse uh, in terms of her occupation, and when the when the vaccines were voluntary. He said to his patient, you should not take this because of your medical conditions. And I forget what the details were, but the doctor said, don't, don't get this vaccine. You should not take it. Well, fast forward three or four months and the Alberta government makes the vaccine effectively mandatory uh, because if you don't take it, you're going to get expelled from university, fired from your job, ineligible to collect EI if you are, if your employment is, is terminated. And a second-class citizen who, who can't use gyms or swimming pools or go into restaurants, et cetera, et cetera. So now there's mandatory vaccines. Do you think this doctor stuck with his guns and uh, and said you shouldn't get the vaccine? Oh, no. Now the doctor says, no, I'm not going to write a vaccine exemption for you. Why? Because the college has dived into the practice of medicine. The college has said here are the one or two or three very narrow grounds on which a doctor may write a vaccine exemption. <laughs> In Ontario, and I think other places, one of them is, if you suffered adverse effects after your first shot, <laughs> that can be a good reason. Like you, you can actually, you're allowed to get an exemption from the second shot if you've already suffered harm from the first shot. I mean, what kind of insanity are we dealing with? Anyway, it's this it's this anti-science uh, approach of the colleges that has driven a lot of doctors into early retirement at a time when we've got effectively a doctor shortage. But there are doctors who it's just like, you know what? I, I can't practice medicine freely anymore. I, I cannot exercise my professional judgment. I cannot look at the science and determine myself how the science best applies to my patients. I can no longer make this uh, these individual judgment calls because I've got a college breathing down my neck. And so uh, that exacerbates the problem is that the colleges, there are doctors who were, let's say they were 60 and they were planning to keep on working until they were 65 or 63. And it's just like, okay, forget it. I'm just going to retire early. And that's how come we end up with stories like this where, you know, Canadians can't find doctors and have to wait longer for appointments. And of course, the nurses, you mentioned the nurse, she was obviously the one that was losing the job because of the vax. Well, that uh, hurt the system as well. I know that it definitely hurt it in BC where they were struggling after they let go all those nurses. So this is, uh, this is a problem that they have created, and I don't think they'll be able to use it to sell the lockdowns or the restrictions the next time around. But I could be wrong. I mean, hey. Canadians seem to have given up on the charter entirely. It seems sometimes. I think I, I, I think I think it's trending our way though, because yeah. you often hear people. Uh, I've t- I've heard from a lot of people who have changed their minds. They used to be uh, pro lockdown and you know full of fear, terrified of COVID, and supportive of the government's measures and supportive of the violation of charter rights and freedoms, and. More and more of these people, uh, not in a huge tidal wave of numbers, but bit by bit by bit by bit, these people are moving over to sensible and and scientific and pro-freedom perspective. Now, I never hear of people going the other way. I never hear of somebody that said, well, you know, I wasn't I wasn't worried about COVID in the first two years, but now I'm really scared of COVID or uh I opposed the violations of our charter rights and freedoms, but, but now I support them. I want, I want our charter rights and freedoms violated. Never hear of people going in the opposite direction towards believing the government. The only, right. the only movement that's taking place is people moving away from trusting the government. I would agree. But then again, I, I'm a little worried about, you know, confirmation bias because, you know, people 
they don't volunteer their opinion and I kind of sound them out a little bit. That actually happened to me the other day when I had a workman in the house and I kind of, you know, started it and I was pleasantly surprised, let me say. <laughs> I think we have another supporter okay. after that. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I, I'm in the same position as you are. I tend to hear about people going one way on this issue and they don't seem to be, you know, getting more fearful. However, obviously they got something planned, you know, if Trudeau thinks that he's going to foist these restrictions on everybody uh, if we don't get up to 90% compliance on the booster. So, I mean, that's zero COVID just about. We know what happened in China with zero COVID. Uh, there's a good article about that uh, in Spike that I'll include in the show notes below. There's not a single example in human history of lockdowns being used successfully to eradicate a virus. Now, people will talk about how in the during the Spanish flu, uh, 1918 to 1920, right? And this was a this was a virus that killed people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And it was just vicious. You could get the Spanish flu and be dead 24 hours later. It actually left a lot of young children orphans. Uh, it was not a disease that was, you know, kind of like a, a bad annual flu that, uh, you know, caused more deaths amongst people in their 70s and 80s than your typical year. It wasn't like that. It, it killed people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, which is what made it so fearful because it had a real impact on population life expectancy. When you've got millions of people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s dying of the Spanish flu, it, it just had a huge impact. Uh, and COVID is less than 1% as deadly. But in terms of lockdowns, people will say, well, during the Spanish flu in the United States from 1918 to 1920, because there are various waves of this, it went on for about two years. And there were some cities that locked down and some cities that did not. So they did have some temporary restrictions. Like there were some cities that uh, banned church services for a week or two weeks. So that'd be an example of a you know minimal lockdown, no church allowed for the next two weeks. And you had the opposite. Uh, you had some, some cities allowed big parades and uh, the street was just packed full of people all side by side. And then, you know, the, the, uh, the death, death rates did spike upwards. So the lockdowns can have a temporary effect to speed up or, you know, to slow down the spread of the virus. That's true. However, the interesting thing is at the end of the day, the cities that had some minimal lockdowns, pretty minimal compared to what we've seen in the last 30 months, but the cities and states with lockdowns and the cities and states without lockdowns, at the end of the Spanish flu making its way through society, there was not a correlation. They still had the same death rates. The only difference was that the cities that locked down, they temporarily slowed down the death rate for a week or two. But then the point is the virus goes through all of society. It kills whom it will kill. The only possible solution that, that's a partial solution is if you protect the vulnerable, which in Canadian society, that would be elderly people in nursing homes, uh, almost all of whom have one or two or three serious health conditions. If you don't have serious health conditions, you're probably not going to be in a nursing home to begin with, right? Long-term care facility. Mm -hmm. You're going to be one of these people, and, and there's quite a few of them, people in their 70s and 80s and 90s that are living at home and they're not in a long-term care facility. But if you want to really protect the vulnerable in the long-term care facilities, then you let the virus, which is not a serious threat to 90% of the population, you let it be out and about, and then we acquire herd immunity. And then when herd immunity has been acquired, uh, we take a few weeks, then you reopen the long-term care facilities, and those people are not as threatened as what they were before because the, the virus is no longer spreading because it has no place to, to spread because there's been herd immunity. So that, that's about the only thing you can do. And so what you see in China is just frightening because they seem to be doing this zero COVID approach, you know, locking down a city of 21 million people or locking down Shanghai, 25 million people, saying everybody has to stay indoors. And, and then the factory workers uh, get forced to stay uh, at the factory where they're working. They're, they're not allowed to go home, right? So it's kind of like mm -hmm. you're, it's almost like some, I don't know internment camp, you know, the factory where you work, right, yeah. you got to stay there. You're not allowed to leave and go home. Uh, you've, you know, they've got some room there to, to go and sleep when your shift is over. 
it's a zero COVID approach that is just, it's unscientific, it cannot work, and it's a massive violation of, of human rights. And there is some speculation that uh, there's a political motive behind it in certain areas of China. I don't know whether that's true, but people have talked about it, that the government is using it uh, basically to quiet dissent, especially in Shanghai. That's the uh, the theory that I heard. And considering that it's not really scientific, it kind of makes sense. You know, that there must be some other motive here because they're not getting it. They're not achieving zero COVID and they're not going to achieve it in the long run. So what's the, what's the purpose? Why are they doing this? Well, once again, the only, the only science at play here is political science. Yeah, I know. Well, well that's probably a great place to end the show <laughs> on a political science note. Thanks, John, for being with us for episode 35 of Justice with John Carpe. It's been great, and I look forward to talking to you next week. Talk to you next week, Kevin. Bye.